Hello and welcome back to the True Crime Guys podcast. I'm Lauren. And I'm Michael. Well, we have quite a case here this week from a listener sent in. Jana, longtime listener and Patreon Creep of the Crop, uh, has sent us a hell of a suggestion. What a case. Um, a college, Wouldn't expect anything less. Yeah, a college creating a documentary and ultimately helping to solve the murder uh, that they, you know, the documentary was made about. Right, almost 25, 25 years, years later. Fact. Yeah, pretty incredible. Absolutely. Absolutely incredible. Really brought you know, some attention back. And it's crazy that they were even able to to solve this crime with this. But it's like it just stirred up all these emotions from people. Yeah, who technically were they didn't bring anything to light in the documentary right. that that solved the crime. They just renewed interest in it and got a cold case uh, detective on the case, like reopened the case basically. Yeah, they had no evidence. They had no no new evidence, no hard evidence whatsoever. That's it's crazy. Yeah. That was such a long shot, and I know that probably wasn't their intention. Their intention was probably just to keep the victim's memory alive. Yeah, uh, but it spread to something something crazy, <laughs> and it yeah. ended up solving this case. Yeah. Well, that's is that enough of a foreshadowing to get I, into this? I think so. I think so. Are you enticed? Are you not interested? Are you not interested? Interested? She's in the bedroom. I walked into that bedroom. She was bound with her wrists behind her back. She was bound by her ankles. Her eyes were taped shut. She was bound with tape around her mouth, with a belt around her neck. She was naked. It's like raping her and saying, how do you like that I was part of the cheering session. I uh, called her Encouraged the activity. It'd pull up on the belt, and her head would come up, and then they would release it, and then they would pull up on it, and then they would release it. I heard somebody say, She's dead. I feared for my life. never spoke to my family about this at all. Um, I was afraid I would be charged. Afraid of the relationship I would have with my family afterward. I was also afraid of the relationship I might or might not have with my daughter. Why did you finally decide to tell the police the truth? For one reason, it's the right thing to do. Another reason is for me. All right, our case this week is the murder of Janet Chandler. And as we mentioned, it was suggested by a longtime listener, Jana. And we have some uh, main study sources to credit for this case, um, helping me with the crime line. Uh, we have Conspiracy of Silence, which is a, a fantastic article uh, from 2008 uh, by ABC News journalist Victoria Cordery, and then also a, a really good Glamour.com article. Uh, I'm not going to give away the title of the article because it'll give away basically this whole case. <laughs> oh, it's one of those. Yeah, the headline yeah. just, just but destroys everything. The, 
the link to that article will be in the episode description. And I also nice. got the documentary, the aforementioned documentary that the students of this college created, which helped break the case. Uh, you can purchase that on, uh, where, where did I get that? It was $20 on... Um, oh, wow. Probably like on Amazon yeah, v- or something. Vimeo, I think. It was oh, on Vimeo. Vimeo. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, if you if you uh, Google who killed Janet Chandler documentary, you'll be able to find it on Vimeo, and it, it's twenty dollars to purchase it. Oh, right on. Yeah, right but on. I'm sure that money I, probably goes to the college. You know, something along those. I doubt one person is benefiting from it. I'm sure, or maybe the film, the filmmakers in general, whoever yeah. produced the film, whether it be that professor or whatever. Yeah, I think it was the professor. Yeah. yeah, but I'm like once again, if he's still a professor, it would, should go to into his class. I agree. Maybe they'll make another documentary with the money. Who knows? Right. I'm sure he would. I'm sure he'd put it back. <clears throat> yeah, so let's get into it. Uh, this this case takes place in Holland, Michigan, which I want to visit now, especially during the Tulip Festival. It sounds like a really <laughs> beautiful place right off the coast of uh, Lake Michigan. Right, but don't um, you dare pick one of those tulips, though. $50 new. fine. Yeah, $50 fine if you pick a tulip during the Tulip Festival. That's crazy. They take that shit yeah. serious. Yeah, man. Uh, so it's Holland, Michigan is a city off the shore of Lake Makatawa, Makatawa uh, and opposite Lake Michigan from Milwaukee and Chicago. It's a serene place where sidewalks are lined with Victorian style street lamps. Um, and the su- city perhaps is best known for its Dutch heritage, uh, hence the Holland name, right? Um, which serves not only as part of the city's cultural identity, but the local economy as well. The Tulip Festival in May and various Dutch themed attractions attract thousands of tourists annually. And as you mentioned, the if you pick a, a tulip during the tulip festival, it's a fifty dollar fine. Oof. And you know, you you might think you you could snatch one because there's over six million that bloom in spring. Right. But who's gonna notice? <laughs> don't you dare. <laughs> <laughs> who's gonna notice, man? You can't take right. one tulip to start some tulips in your yard. Maybe you want to be part of the Dutch festival. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. We were talking a little bit before we started recording about Holland and how I think it's really cool that immigrants come to this country and then they create like a little piece of home. Sometimes you see these towns that are themed yes. after European cities and towns. Yes. It's pretty cool. There's actually a town uh, in the mountains here in North Carolina and near Asheville, and it's called Little Switzerland. And I actually found out about it on Instagram. I saw this video of this dude uh, longboarding, you know, like down, downhill longboarding, you know, where yeah. they're doing like 80, 90 miles an hour. Yeah, down this place, fuckers. and I was like, man, this place is beautiful. I'm like, what? Where is this? And, you know, I thought it was somewhere like Switzerland, or, you know, somewhere in Denmark or something like that. And then I looked location. <laughs> North Carolina. And it says Little <laughs> Switzerland, North Carolina. I was like, what? I'm going to visit this place. So, yeah, I've Hell been up yeah. there, and it is, it's pretty, it's pretty magical. It really does look like a whole, you know, a little town out of Switzerland. It's just like a little village almost. Yeah. It's amazing. It's badass. I love that stuff. Yeah, I guess just, uh, you know, a large group of immigrants all from the same place come yeah. to an area and eventually they get into politics and they start changing I think, things. Uh, doesn't, and, doesn't Brooklyn have all like like little Israel where it's like an entire like few city blocks where it's just entirely Jewish population? Oh, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure Brooklyn probably has areas where it's all sorts of different cultures. Yeah. You know, they probably have Melting all different Melting pot types. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Holland, uh, Holland, Michigan is also known for Dizwan, which is an original 250-year-old Dutch windmill that is situated on Windmill Island. Um, it's standing 125 feet tall with 40-foot sails. Wow, they need to put some electricity on that thing. Right. Right? Let that thing do some work for you. Yeah. <laughs> and pretty small town. As of the 2010 consensus, the population was 33,000. 
and over 28% of the population identifies as being Dutch. Wow, uh, still. Of, of Dutch descent, still, so. <clears throat> yeah, it's a pretty large part of the population. Yeah. So let's get into the college that plays a massive role in this case. Hope College, it's a small Christian school that originally opened in 1851 and has a beautiful campus in Holland's downtown. And as we mentioned, this school would play a huge role in reinvigorating this case. The film director at, or film instructor, David Schock, uh, who worked at Hope College, came across Janet's story in the spring of 2003 while he was interviewing a detective who was retiring from the Holland Police Force. Schock asked the detective if there was a case that still haunted him to this day. Pointing at a photo of Janet that had been hanging on a bulletin board since 1979, the detective replied, that Chandler case. Professor Schock thought that the 24-year-old mystery of the murdered former Hope student would be a good project for his class. Um, quote, I don't want you to think that we are going to solve this murder, Shock told his students. Instead, by making a documentary about the case, they should aim to revive Janet's memory, kind of like right. what I mentioned earlier. I think that was the best they could hope for at that time. You know, yep. I mean, this is a 25-year-old cold case. You know, I mean, you're optimistic yep. to think that you're going to solve it with a group of students. Yeah, and there have been some unfortunate things that had occurred with this, with the investigation of this case, like uh, almost all of Janet's personal belongings uh, that were, you know, with her at the time of her murder were stolen from lockup. Oh, we can talk about that later. So, like, they didn't have much in the way of physical evidence to go with, right? And no one was talking. So, yeah, as far as this, you know, this class at Hope College solving this crime, it was unlikely. <laughs> yeah, slim to none. So let's get into Janet Chandler. Let's get into her life and her murder. She was born May twenty ninth, nineteen fifty six, and shares a birthday with John F. Kennedy and Carmelo Anthony. Oh wow! All right. Two legends in their own right there. Definitely Hall of Famer sure. and Carmelo Anthony and JFK. I mean, one of the most famous presidents in history. Yep. No doubt. And back in that's a that's a case we could do someday for sure. His oh, assassination man. and yes. all the theories surrounding that. Yeah, set aside a few hours for that one. You set aside aside of a month studying set for aside. that one. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, I mean oh yeah. It's one of those yeah, cases yeah. that like Multiple you probably partner. won't ever do if we stay consistently putting out an episode every week because you just a week doesn't feel like enough time. To really tackle a case like that. Oh, exactly. Yeah, we'd have to we'd have to like take a couple weeks off. Yeah. Maybe a month. <laughs> and then come back with like a four-parter. <laughs> mm-hmm. So back in 1979, Janet Chandler was a 22-year-old music student at Hope College, the very college that later does the documentary about her. Uh, she was also working nights at a, as a desk clerk at a local motel. Her father, Jim Chandler said that uh, we tried not to get her to take that, meaning the job at the as a desk clerk right. at the hotel. Even then, a night clerk job at a motel wasn't the safest place to be. However, her parents' uh, worst fears that that motel job um, you know, would result in something were realized on the early morning hours of January 31st, uh, 1979, uh, when her daughter didn't come home that night and news broke the next morning when... The Blue Mill Inn, uh, news that the Blue Mill Inn had been robbed of about $500 and hotel clerk Janet Chandler was missing from the office. Uh, The Chandlers were frantic. Uh, Jim Chandler and his son, Dennis, Janet's brother, searched all night for for Janet. So they got got word at like uh, 2 o'clock, 2 a.m. Wednesday morning that this had occurred and that their daughter was missing. And, you know, they, her father and her brother waste no time. They just jump in their vehicles and start searching town, searching rural areas. 
Right. Which is exactly what you you and I would do, you know. Absolutely. You got to do something. You feel like you have to yeah. do something. You can't at this just time. sit around no. and wait by the phone. Right. I'm no at least going to go Especially where in a small was. town. Like, yeah. no way. I'm looking. Exactly. Exactly. So d- her brother Dennis says, quote, I just got in my Jeep and drove to Holland and started driving all the back roads. My dad did the same thing. Uh, unfortunately, they would find nothing, and a day later, a snowplow driver would. Um, he turned into a highway crossover south of Holland and spotted something buried in the snow. It was the naked and battered body of a woman. Mm. Quote, it wasn't until noon that Janet's, pa- Janet's parents were brought down to identify the body. Jim Chandler said about this occurrence, quote, you're just numb. You can't believe that something like this could happen, you know. And uh, so, yeah, he had to go down and identify his daughter's body, every parent's nightmare and you know it was preserved well in ice in snow yeah. you know what i mean it's not like it had yeah, been decomposed the, at all she probably still looked like she, she had just been killed you know God. and it was kind of a fluke that she was found at all it was one of those uh turnarounds on the highway that basically only like snowplow drivers yep. and like uh highway patrol Police. use yep yeah and the snowplow driver just he he was curious to see that someone had been in there recently because they're so rarely used and he saw some disturbed snow on an embankment and walked up there and found Janet's body. It, it appeared as though whoever dumped her had tried to cover her body with snow and yeah. kind of done a half-assed job. Wow. I wonder, um, man, that's just, that just seems strange that a snowplow driver would be like, let me, let me just go see what, what, what went on down here. Maybe he thought somebody was Yeah, stuck. but you know how it is. Like, that's, that's the job he does. And so like, he knows when something's a little off. Like, he sees all those turnarounds and all those embankments. Like, yeah, I guess so. Rarely is there any disturbance in the snow in there. So it's just kind of like, well, why was someone in here? Right, right. Well, I'm sure they plowed those too, though. He could have been. Yeah. Yeah, because they would have to for you know police and highway patrol. And yeah, whatnot. that's my point. He, he was the plow driver. Yeah. And but he saw that someone had been in there before it had been plowed, which is odd. Hmm. So it had to have been some sort of a four by four pickup because I imagine the snow was pretty big. It was pr- prior to the uh, snowplow driver getting there. Oh yeah, so and I'm sure all the police in that area are driving four by fours anyways. Though it'd be silly yeah. not to. I mean, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so Janet's fan- funeral took place in the same church where she had sung in choir, um, and her her dad would say, "quote In fact, she sang at her own funeral." Uh, Janet's recording of My Jesus was played at the service. Uh, wow. Yeah, she was she was a very good singer, just naturally. She had a, like a, a voice that would carry like beyond her size. She was a, a small girl, but right. her voice was would could fill uh, an auditorium. I feel like you find that um, often. Some of the smallest people have the strongest voices. You see, like some yeah. of like the world's greatest opera singers. Some of them are are so thin and so small. You're like, what? How? That was her style of That's singing crazy. was opera. She had that like just deep. Uh, opera voice. That right. she, you know, there's a lot of recordings out there. The documentary that I watched that the the film school made, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of audio played throughout it of her singing. Oh, really? I'm going to have to check that yeah. out. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, because yeah, I was curious what her voice sounded like, but I imagine she was a It's not what singer. you imagine when you look at her picture. Really? <laughs> it's not at all. I you, you mean like in the style or the sound of her voice? No, just the sound. The sound of it is not what you'd expect okay. from like looking at her picture of this little girl. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So the brutal murder, of course, stunned the quiet lakeside town of Holland. Um, police launched into an extensive investigation, at one point foc- focusing on some local men who had done some barroom bragging about being involved. But to the Chandler's surprise, no arrests were ever made. The Chandlers have always believed that someone from the motel must have done something or heard something the night that Janet was abducted and that there were still people out there keeping a terrible secret. Uh, investigators were also convinced that someone was holding something back, if not multiple people. 
but no witnesses came forward. No one talked, and Janler, Janet Chandler's case went cold. Um, and back, you know, this takes us back to 2003 when Professor David Schock and his students took on the task of creating a documentary about Janet Chandler. Right. Um, and their task would be to talk to the Chandlers, the, uh, to Janet's old college teachers, to the cops, anybody they could talk to that had anything to do with this case or knew anything about Janet, they talked to, including like her piano uh, instructor, um, you name it. They talked to everybody. Yeah, why couldn't I be involved in any college projects like this? I know, no. right? It sounds amazing. God, neither high school nor college projects that I had were anything like this. Now, provided I didn't go much college, but still, <laughs> I just don't. Yeah. I, you just don't hear of this much anymore. I guess maybe in maybe in you know undergrad programs and whatnot. I don't know. Yeah, hmm. yeah, and honestly, the film was was legit. Like you wouldn't think it was a, a college class that made it. They the the the, the they used real cameras. They had. Uh, they must have had like lapel mics because the audio was fantastic when nice. they interviewed people. Um, the the edits and the cuts in the film were, you know, on par with any other documentary you watch. It was well done. It was a little dry. There wasn't like, it wasn't like on par with like an HBO documentary where it was like, you know, riveting. Right. It was more just you know learning more about Janet. It was just. Like, interviews with people that knew her and right that's what um, and also the detectives that worked the case so right that and that's something you have to understand about this documentary is that the documentary itself didn't bring anything to light it's just the fact that it brought the case back up right yes. so i think that's why the, the documentary is not super profound because if you just no. you know just knowing the information that we've already given you you could mm -hmm. watch the documentary and not be surprised right you're like yeah that's also part of it when you watch it you have to remember that it was made in 03 before anything broke on this case. Right. It was back when, you know, this was unsolved and they didn't know they were trying, there was a lot of talking about theories of what might've occurred. And now knowing what you know, by the end of this episode, you're going to be like, you guys don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> These theories are wrong, you know. Exactly. But, you know that, I mean, yeah. God, if I was that professor, I would so be wanting to make like a follow-up or something now, you right. know, or just yeah, extend sure. it, make an extended version and go, oh man, you could, you really could make an amazing documentary now. Knowing what they know, right? Yeah, that would be something for sure. And like, add in the kids that did the documentary originally with you back in '03. Yes. Now, is it like full fledged adults and like give their take on making that film and then how things turned out? That would be good. That would be yeah. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. Yeah. So at the time, they only had four months to make this documentary, which mean they needed a, which meant they needed a crash course on Holland, Mich uh, Holland, Michigan in the late '70s. So they went. They took to the library. They took to interviewing. Uh, once again, people that were involved in the case back then, the students did interviews with the Chandlers and became taken by their by them and their open and willingness to share their daughter's story with anyone that was interested. That helped a lot. The fact that the Chandlers were, you know, Janet's parents were so willing to help them with this project. Because yeah. once, I mean, what did they have to lose? They wanted re, uh, renewed interest in their daughter's case as well because it was still unsolved. Right, but I think they were shocked at the fact that they were still willing to drudge up all those past feelings. And memories yes. about the case, yeah. you know, you know that had to be hard. I mean, for any parent, that would be hard. But I think the also, I mean, when you've when you've lost a child like that, I, I hear time and time again, like there's never a moment throughout the day that you're not thinking about them. So it's not like they've been able to just bury this and forget about it. Exactly, exactly. And the the want for closure, the want for yeah. justice, is a lot more, you know, because they they've mm -hmm. already came, they've already got closure in the fact that their daughter is gone. So yeah. now something to revive her memory to, you know, to justify yeah. her death would be helpful. Yeah. yeah. So John Johnson, one of Professor Shock's students, talked to, 
talk, uh, talked about Janet's parents bringing out a trunk that they hadn't brought out in 25 years with all the letters and pictures of her. Quote, at that point, you kind of become, I want to do it for them. Yeah. So the, 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 you know, these students felt a lot of responsibility to do as good of a job as they could in representing Janet. Right. You know, and I guess in a way you were right about what you said about, you know, they were surprised that the parents were willing to bring up all these old men because that shows you right there that it's still painful that they haven't looked at these, this trunk of photos and stuff, into, you know, since their daughter's death. Right. Yeah. I would imagine her room is probably still the way it was. And yeah. 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 And here's where we learn more about Janet as well. Um, Glenna Chandler says, quote, she was easygoing and happy-go-lucky. This is her mother. And she lived a sheltered lifestyle. We are Christians, and she was brought up in the church. And all of her friends were churches, uh, friends from the church. Every time her girlfriend would get married, we'd go to the, me- to the wedding. It was hard. So talking about, you know, her girlfriends that obviously lived on beyond right. her and would go on to get married and stuff. Her father, Dennis, said, well, she definitely knew where she was heading. She believed in God. She was always doing little projects to make Christmas special and was all around a good sister. Uh, This is her brother talking now. But he observed that Janet had changed after she took the job at the Blue Mill. He said that Janet had, quote, probably experimented with uh, things adults do, maybe a little bit of drink, different dating. Hmm. Um, So, yeah, she was a a bit of a contradiction. She was a conflicted uh, young woman. She was 22 at the time of her murder, as we mentioned, and she, right. even as her parents say, she was very sheltered growing up, and she just started to kind of taste the the fruits of adulthood uh, around the time that she was murdered. Right. She started having sex and uh, maybe experimenting with alcohol and things like that, uh, things that she had never done and were forbidden in her household growing up. Right. I think you just had a classic case of she was basically living a double life towards her parents. Mm-hmm. You know, her parents only saw so many layers of her. They didn't know her yeah. and how she was evolving and and changing in, as as she grew into adulthood. So I think there was a lot of things kept kept from them, you know, on purpose, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In her younger years, Janet had gone on evangel- evangelical missions and lent her voice to the choir church or to the church choir. Um, in middle school, she worked part-time at a daycare center and later dedicated herself to to a dream of singing. At one point, she had gone to nursing school uh, and did that for a year before realizing that it wasn't for her. Yeah. And I think she re- like she was a transfer student to Hope College, so she wasn't uh, the best well-known kid in school. She was kind of lonely as well. Right. Um, the president of, the col- of Hope College was interviewed in the documentary, and he brought that up, that it was tough for transfer students at the time, and they, you know, he regrets not doing more to help them blend in with the school. Yeah. Um. And so there was, uh, you know, it seemed a side of Janet that seemed unsure and unhappy. Uh, the piano teacher that I keep mentioning, he was interviewed in the documentary as well. He was an interesting guy, as you'd imagine an older piano teacher would be. Yeah. Um, he was a bit eccentric. <laughs> uh, he said that uh, Janet attended school or attended uh, Hope College and studied under him as, uh, you know, as a piano teacher. Right. And he described her as, quote, emotionally volatile and said that she often ran out of class in tears when criticized. So she hadn't wow. been through a ton of uh, adversity. A she true musician. Handle criticism no, very well. <laughs> What'd you say? I said yes. So she was a true musician. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Musicians are the worst about getting criticized. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's tough. Yeah. And apparently, like he even mentioned that there was uh, there was either other students or someone at the school was taking bets on, you know, whether she would run out of class crying that day. That's how frequently it happened. Whoa. So a very sensitive young woman at the time. Um, 
A Hope a music professor portrayed her as a talented student who struggled academically and seemed to have a uh, few friends. The student said that the experience left them a bit shaken, but even more committed to finding out what happened and who might be keeping silent about Janet's murder. Speaking of the students making this documentary, the more they learned about Janet, um, the experience of talking to her parents and all these people, right? Um, they, they just became more emboldened to try and try and solve this mystery. They, yeah, even though they were told when they went into it, like this, this isn't about solving this. You know, of course they they wanted to see if they could approach this at a different angle, see something that the, the detectives missed. Oh, of course, um, and they had a fresh uh, a fresh interest in it, and sometimes that's all you need: some fresh eyes, some yeah. fresh interest, some fresh motivation. Yeah. yeah, and of course, I mean this this hits home for them because she was a student just like them. You know, twenty four years ago, she was they could have been in her shoes. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, a student named Kyle Shepard said, "Quote that happened a whole lifetime ago, and then when it, it then it just really puts a lot of things into perspective for you. She didn't get to live her life." And so they began to document Janet's life and death for, by first going back to January 31st, 1979, the night of her murder, uh, where just after 2 a.m., police received a call from the motel where Janet worked, the Blue Mill Inn. Now, this is something we haven't mentioned yet. You know, there was this is how this robbery and abduction was was reported. Right. Was a police uh, a call to the police. The caller said, "Quote: I have a reason to believe that there might be a robbery in progress down in the office or the lobby." Holland Police Detective Jim Fairbanks uh, raced to the scene, um, uh, quote, it had been a robbery. We could determine that. And it was also very clear that the clerk was missing. And of course, that clerk would be Janet Jan Chandler. Yeah. Um, Fairbanks said that Jan Chandler's jacket was still on the chair and her Salem cigarette still smoldered in the ashtray. So that puts into perspective that, you know, they missed this by not a long amount of time. The cigarette was still burning that right. she had left. Um and Detective Fairbanks would interview a man, who, the man who had called nine one one, Robert Lynch, but Lynch said that he had seen nothing. So how did um, he know there was a robbery then? Right, he he'd overheard. He said that he'd overheard um, a, a girl pleading with some men, saying, "Please don't take it all," something along those lines. Oh, okay, okay. And then when he went down there, they were gone. And you know, obviously, no one working at the desk is odd. And the safe was open. Right. Right. <clears throat> so there were some things about the uh, abduction of Janet that really didn't sit well with the students when they started learning more about it. The motel was full of guests that night, um, but Detective Fairbanks said that he couldn't find a single eyewitness. The uh -huh. students wondered how could no one have seen or heard the abduction. Uh, Amy Schlossler, Schossler, uh, a student, said, how could they get her into a car? How was she taken without anyone hearing her scream or put up a fight? Did she know this person? So then we began to question, were there two people involved? Were there multiple people involved? The students say perhaps their toughest assignment was visiting the desolate highway turnoff where Janet's body had been dumped in the snow and seeing the crime scene photos. These photos showed Janet had been strangled with some sort of a rope, wire, or belt. Uh, one of the students said, quote, it made it a lot more real. And the more students learned about the crime, the more, they que the more questions they had. What happened to her after the abduction? How long after the abduction had she been killed? What happened in the time between the abduction and murder? Valid questions. Uh, Sarah Hartman, another student, said, quote, we became investigators. We went from college students, everyday classes, to investigators. Yes. See? Like you said, what a cool project, right? right? For you to take on in I college. I would never miss this class. Right? Damn. Crazy. Um, one figure in particular mystified several of the students. Janet's supervisor at the Blue Mill. Uh, who was also her roommate in and off campus uh, in, in an apartment, Lori Ann Swank. 21 at the time of her murder, Swank had left town quickly afterward. 
They wondered why. Mm, uh, they scoured old phone books looking for her, and their teacher, David Shock, knocked on doors in her whole neighborhood. No one knew her whereabouts. So her best friend and roommate, who worked with her uh-huh. at the front desk, disappears forever afterwards. That's very suspicious. Yeah, wasn't she the supervisor as well? I think. Yeah, she was over she Janet. She was over Janet, that's right. Yeah. And as the final weeks of the semester neared, the class began weave, uh, weaving the interviews into film. So they started the editing process. And the movie uh, started at the end of Janet's life. The camera zoomed in on a crime scene photo of her hand poking up from the snowbank with a recording of her playing piano in the background. But then it shifted to happier times, childhood pictures in which Janet's broad smile lit up the frame. The student documentary Who Killed Janet Chandler opened at the Knickerbocker Theater in Holland, Michigan, just days shy of the 25th anniversary of her murder. Amy Schlossler, uh, the student we mentioned earlier, said it was just very emotional for everyone. She had become real to me, and I think that it, she had become very real in the hearts of my, and minds of everyone, um, especially everyone that saw that documentary. Oh, absolutely. You know, that was the pivotal role they played in this case was bringing her to life. That, I think that was part of the issue with her investigation and like the lack of interest in her cold case was just there wasn't enough about Janet out there. Right. Um, and this that was the you know, part, the role that they played by putting out this You know, I also, I wonder how much of a role it played, her being a new person in this area as well. You know, yeah, not having sure. a lot of friends, not having a lot of close acquaintances. Being a transfer student. Yes, exactly. People weren't really used to her being there, so really, how could they miss her? It didn't seem like a big piece yeah. of the of the area of the local culture was gone, with her gone, mm-hmm. you know? Mm, perfect storm. Yeah, so the students had brought Janet's story back to life, but they were no closer to solving the crime than the police had been 25 years earlier. No closer to finding out how a young woman could be abducted abducted and murdered without a single person seeing or hearing a thing. The film winds down with a heart-tugging plea from Jim Chandler, who raised the possibility that he and Glenna might die without ever knowing who killed their daughter. Quote, it would be a whole lot better to find out who did this and see justice done, he said. Uh, The killer will ultimately get punished, but we probably won't know about it. Nope. And yet the documentary, they didn't understand, they didn't get it yet, but that, would, that documentary was about to uh, get that, that trail of justice started. Uh, Professor Shock said, quote, all along, one of our hopes and prayers was to we could stir enough interest in, renew, in a renewed inf- investigation. Professor Shock had been lobbying the police to use his students' documentary as a jumping off point for a cold case investigation. <clears throat> there was a little resistance, though. I mean, it wasn't as simple as they put out the documentary and then right away a cold case investigation is open. Right. Lieutenant John Slank, who headed up the state police cold case unit uh, for southwestern Michigan, said, quote, Quite frankly, initially I was hesitant to do it because I knew it was going to involve a tremendous amount of time. One big neg- negative in this case was the fact that modern technology was not going to help solve it. He said there was physical evidence, but the physical evidence didn't bring any real value to the investigation. Um and the case would hinge on tracking down witnesses and getting uh, getting them to talk. Yep, that's the only chance they had. So, but this documentary was able to do just that. It kind of stirred some emotions. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. No one had talked in 25 years, but the, investigation, the investigators hoped that uh, publicity generated by the documentary might encourage witnesses who kept silent in 1979 to come forward now. And like the Chandlers, Slank believed someone out there knew the truth. He assembled what he called a dream team of investigators, and they began learning everything they could about the Janet Chandler case. Uh, The cold case team went all out, casting a wide net of Janet's old friends and coworkers, and Detective Joffrey said that uh, he used a student documentary to jog memories and perhaps stir some guilt. So they showed this documentary to everybody. Oh, yeah. Everybody, like, as they, they, you know, did this sprawling reinvestigation into Janet's murder. Right. Like everybody they talked to, any old witnesses, they showed this film to them to kind of stir those emotions again and maybe, 
get them to uh you know, bring out the, the the hidden secrets they had in their closet. It's a great idea. I mean, let these people watch yeah. the documentary, and then you watch the people while they're watching the documentary, <laughs> right? right? Just watch For their sure. emotions, watch their faces, their body language, and mm-hmm. it really helped to, to give the police some good leads. See the shame in their face? Yeah. Knowing they had a part of this? That's right. That's right. I mean, you're only human. Yeah. God. Yeah. So the detective assigned uh, to lead the reinvestigation was 45-year-old veteran David Van Lopik. Uh, one of the first interviews was with Chandler, Janet's old roommate, Lori Swank. So they tracked her down. Um, unlike the, you know, the, the Hope College professor was able to, he was unable to do that. But they found Lori. She was now in her 40s and she was working as a nursing uh, assistant at a hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, Swank, as we mentioned, was Janet's boss at the motel, uh, but was not working the night of the crime. They showed her a clip from the documentary and Swank, even after all those years, appeared to be deeply affected. She said, quote, it made me physically ill. What could she have done to deserve this to happen to her? She brightly recalled Janet as, quote, musical and fun-loving. But when the officer handed her a photo of showing Janet with several of the guards from the Blue Mill, Swank's upbeat mood seemed to deflate. Quote, they were a wild group who liked to party, she said, adding that Janet had affairs with the guards and admitting that she did too. Swank said that she even had to reprimand Janet for using a display, display suite to have sex in. Yet Swank knew, uh, said she knew nothing and that she could not shed any light on that horrific night. So they found out some more of what had been going yeah, on, and it seems to point some more uh, in the direction of these guards. And we'll get into who these guards exactly were, but the motel was not, this was not a typical year for this uh, Blue Mill Inn. You know, it typically would be a very quiet motel during the winter months. Right in Michigan. It wouldn't be packed a packed house like it was, but there was a strike going on, and we'll get into all that. Um, the cold case team also tracked down a group of former security guards who had been living at the Blue Mill Inn in the late 1978 and early 1979. The men had been in town uh, to police a bitter strike at the chemical plant, but the strike ended soon after Janet Chandler's murder, coincidentally. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the reason that this motel was was popping at this time was because of a strike at the local chemical plant. During the winter of 1978, a strike was crippling Holland's Chemtron plant. And during the strike of 1978-1979, nearly 200 union members had walked out of the Chemtron plant, and the Teamsters organizers brought in experienced strikers from Detroit to lend muscle in the picket line. That's so and silly. It's like me, a little man. war that was going on in this small town. It's pretty crazy because in return, Chemtron hired their own guys to fight back. The Wacken Hut Security uh, Company <laughs> provided guards who could keep the gates open from strike bro- strike breakers. So Jesus, they had to bring in extra reinforcements. So you had to bring in like fake strikers, like people who weren't weren't even working for these local uh, yeah, companies. From Detroit, the experienced union guys, man, yeah. from Detroit during, <laughs> during the automaking days. Yeah, they just bring in. Okay, they just bring in a big old crowd. They bring in the heavy hitters, they pay these and in guys, return, yeah. Chemtron hires Wacken Hut Security Company to come in and provide guards, and those guys were all staying at the Blue Mill Hotel, the uh-huh. Wacken Hut Security uh-huh. Team. Okay. Um, Wackenhut Security is a household name in international security services. Their name, however, is not currently in use anymore. In 2002, founder George Wackenhut sold his company to Group 4 Falk, a large security corporation working out of Denmark. This is uh, Wackenhut Corporation provided uh, security services to commercial and government organizations. Here's a little quote from their, uh, like, an information website about them. Quote, from its founding in 1954, the Wackenhut Corporation has been characterized by two attributes, an absolute commitment to the highest standards of integrity, quality, and performance, and an entrepreneurial corporate culture. 
This result is a flexible, responsive, market-driven organization to pro- that proactively develops sustainable lines of services that the corporation can support, manage, and deliver effectively and profitably. Damn, that sounds professional as hell. It really does. Not and bad. their integrity and quality were on display during the strike of 1978-1979 as the picketers taunted the guards, the guards harassed the strikers, and threw spikes under their tires. Oh. It was an ugly, tension-filled wow. time. Wow. <laughs> Well, I mean, they're fighting fire with fire, I guess. <laughs> I guess. It's just, it's just so the contrast of going from the highest standard of integrity and quality, and then you picture them throwing spike balls under tires. Fuck you guys. And like, you know, like fornicating at the local motel with everybody and anybody and everybody. Right, right. It was a different time, man. Hi, Creepers. The True Crime Guys think that you might be looking for more true crime content. And I am here to tell you all about my show, Military Murder. I am Margot, an 11-year veteran, a lawyer, and a mom. And on my weekly show, I discuss murders that occur around the world at the hands of soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, and sometimes even veterans. Because have you ever realized how many serial killers have a military background? Think Golden State Killer, Israel Keys, Jeffrey Dahmer. I pull back the curtain on military true crime cases that if they would have gotten the national media attention they deserved, like the Vanessa Guillen case, they would have rocked the country because the facts are so bizarre that they will have you wondering, how did these people even get into the military? I cover it all, little known cases, serial killers, mass murderers. So long as there's a military connection, you will hear about it on the show. New episodes come out every Monday. And with over 90 episodes in the library, there is plenty of content for you to binge. Now go on, subscribe and listen to Military Murder. Bye creepers. What's up, Creepers? I want to tell you about our sponsor, EveryPlate. With EveryPlate, experience fuller plates and fuller wallets with America's best value meal kit. Get meals you'll enjoy and your bank account will love delivered right to your door, contact-free. Getting dinner on the table daily used to be a challenge. Now let EveryPlate plan, shop, and deliver everything you need to cook a delicious meal at a delightful price. I have to admit, at first I was skeptical thinking meal kits might be expensive, but now I'm convinced you can get the same deliciousness at a much lower price. So a couple of meals my family and I enjoyed this week from every plate was cowboy skillet pie with poblano and jalapeno peppers and smoky paprika pork chops with green beans and potato wedges. So nice when you have young kids to come home and just be able to cook up a meal that's basically pre-proportioned and planned out for you. You just follow the cards and it turns out delicious. Try every plate for just $1.99 per meal plus an additional 20% off your next two boxes by going to everyplate.com and entering code creeper199. That's C-R-E-E-P-E-R-199. Everyplate.com. Enter code CREEPER199. I used to need coffee to get me through the day, but not so much anymore. I love True Niagen. True Niagen fuels the body's energy engines, maintains cellular metabolism, and even supports heart health. I have more energy and I don't need those extra cups of coffee since I started taking it. With 11 published human clinical studies and backed by Nobel Prize winners, True Niogen is a supplement that's clinically proven to boost NAD levels, an essential coenzyme required for cellular energy and repair. Since taking True Niogen, I have more resiliency. It helps my muscles recover after a workout. I just have more zest for life. Add more vitality to your life today. With True Niogen, right now, new customers can save 10% on their first purchase by going to trueniogen.com slash creeper. That's T-R-U-N-I-A-G-E-N.com slash creeper to save 10% on your first purchase. trueniogen.com slash creeper. What's up, creepers? I don't know about you, but I'm tired of strict and stressful dietary and workout programs. That's why I love Noom. They use a psychological approach. 
Instead of a strict set of rules, they empower you with knowledge to make you smarter and make better decisions when it comes to your life and your health. Noom understands that people live busy lives and not everybody can be on a strict diet and spend multiple days at the gym. They have a healthier balance that's more moldable to your life. And as a result, it's more sustainable. A lot of people, they start these really strict diets and workout programs and they beat themselves up. And within a month or two, they burn out so bad that they go right back to their old ways. Noom is trying to help you change the way you look at things and change your psychology and build something that can last forever and, and change your health forever. Um, I've, my goal when I started Noom was just to be overall healthier. And I, I really feel that it's made a difference. Um, I have more energy because of the choices that I've made and the improvements that I've made to my diet by just by checking in every day with my new professional um, and in doing my 10 minutes on the app, I think about what I purchase at the store more than I did before. All these little changes, they build up into a big thing. With Noom's approach, you unlearn bad habits and you understand your relationship with food more. If you want to try Noom like I have and start building better habits for a healthier long-term result, sign up for your trial at noom.com slash creeper. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash creeper. Once again, sign up for your trial at noom.com slash creeper. So after hours, the strike breakers and guards let loose at the Blue Mill Inn where rooms were reserved for the approximately 80-man whack-and-hut force. Wow. So this motel, like I said, that you know, typically on any given winter would be damn near entirely vacant, you know, like probably right. a few rooms taken talking or whatever. talking the end of January. filled to the max. Right. Yeah. She probably thought, um, Janet probably thought it was going to be an easy gig, you know, working as at a hotel desk yeah, in January. For sure. Like, pff, come on. Yeah, you you know you sit at the desk at, all night long and you like read some books and maybe one or two people check right, in. Right. Yeah. You smoke a cigarette or two here and there. You just chill out. Mm-hmm. Didn't end up being that way. Though. Um. A bar next door to the motel, the tap room was full of local women waiting for the men. Almost all of out, all of them being out of towners to blow out, blow their paychecks when their twelve hour shifts ended. <laughs> During the strike, the Blue Mill Inn was particularly dangerous for a young woman like Janet to be working at. Um, Van Lopik and his team were intrigued, but they had plenty of other leads to follow. The investigators found themselves coming back to the men who'd lived at the Blue Mill. Of course. I mean, how could you not? Right. That was just such an interesting um, dichotomy going on there at the time. These, uh, quote, these guys who were transients, after the murder, they left town. They went to their home states, went to the other strike details, other duties. So it's just a perfect storm. These guys were all there. There were so many of them. They were rowdy. Yeah. There was a lot of partying and all kinds of stuff going on. And then the strike ends right after Janet's murder, and they all just scatter and disappear. And, like, how are you supposed to follow up on on any of them without tracking them each down and one by one and talking to them? And, of course, they have best interest in not saying anything. Exactly. Without, even if they knew something happened. Yeah, with any, without any type of lead, any type of witness in any way, shape, or form, it's, yeah, it just seems like you're just standing in the middle of an intersection with roads going everywhere. There's nowhere. Yeah. Where do you go? Mm-hmm. Where do you start? Yeah. So they would interview suspects in places as far away as West Virginia and Florida. Van Lopik and Detective Roger Van Leer pursued a promising tip to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where Van Leer questioned a convicted rapist. Detective Van Lopik said the guards basically said, quote, we worked 12-hour shifts and we were just crashed at the motel. We didn't do anything other than work, eat, and sleep. Bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, with no one talking, the investigation seemed to be at a dead end. Yet again, after a year of work, but everything was about to change. Detective Rob Bob Borowski said that their first big break was when they interviewed Glenn Johnson in Minneapolis. Johnson was a former guard who'd lived at the Blue Mill Inn, and he said that he'd heard a rumor, just a rumor, that a guard named Robert Lynch was involved in Janet's murder. 
Robert Michael Lynch had been 39 at the time of the strike, and because he was older than the other guards, he wasn't part of their inner circle. Yeah. He was wirely, wiry and frequently drunk. He worked inside the plant, handing out their per diem checks and performing other clerical duties. After the strike was over, he'd built a respectable life for himself in Three Oaks, a town 80 miles south of Holland, opening a beauty school with his wife and raising two kids. The cold case team had heard, <coughs> had heard Lynch's name before. Remember that 911 call? Yep. So he was the one that called the police to begin with and reported the robbery. Yeah, that said he saw nothing, during, but he knew there was a robbery. <laughs> yeah, yeah th- during the call, he yeah. said, quote, I have a reason to believe there might be a robbery in progress down in the office or lobby. That call made by Robert Lynch um, and Detective uh, Geoff, uh, Jeff Lohr listened to that call again and something seemed phony. He said, this sounded staged to me. There's no emotion. Mm. Um, so the team would bring Lynch in for questioning and found him evasive. At 65, he was still drinking heavily, downing hard liquor every day, enough perhaps to dampen his dark past. Perhaps. Perhaps De- not. Yeah. De- yeah. Detective Van Lopik said, we came away from that interview believing there was more involvement on his part than what he was telling us. Uh, they went after anyone had been cl- who had been close to Lynch back in 1979, once again showing clips from the documentary. So they're trying to stir emotions in these people that maybe had uh, you know, more of a ancillary pl- uh, role in this case. They, they, they may have seen something and maybe not had a direct role in it and they show this film to to get them emotionally invested enough to maybe let them know what they saw that's right knowing that they likely won't be in as much trouble as someone directly involved exactly um so uh and then a reporter asked detective uh detective floor at the time if he had seen anyone who had a particularly emotional response to seeing it and uh detective floor said harry keith Keith had been Lynch's roommate at the Blue Mill Inn, and he saw something in that documentary, something that would lead to the discovery of key evidence in the investigation. It was a photograph of Janet. Keith told the police that he was the one who had taken the photo back in 1979, and he showed them other photos he had shot during the time. Detective Borowski uh, said, and this individual had a photo album full of photographs of parties, drinking, and things like that. So it turns out the security guards were not just working their 12-hour shift and going home and going to sleep, and that was that. Wow. Shocker, really thought right? they were telling the truth there. Man, you yeah. can't trust anybody these days. They got such integrity, though. It's right there. <laughs> or those days. Yeah, or those days. <laughs> <laughs> so the Blue Mill Inn, uh, the, tech, the detectives soon learned, was party central for the guards, with a conference area set aside for big gatherings and a rolling room-to-room party that ran all hours of the day and night. Lieutenant Slank said, It was a den of inequity, and it was just a bunch of wild, unsupervised people that were there to party, drink, use drugs, whatever, get involved in sexual escapades, whatever their little hearts desired. (laughs) Where else have we heard den of inequity? Have we have that, like, I feel like that played a role in one of our former cases. I'm sure it has. That's straight from the Bible, bro. Den of inequity. Den of iniquity. Yeah. That's that's, iniquity, sorry. Yeah, that's straight from the Bible there. That's in a lot of stuff, especially in a, a, you know, in a God fearing little town like Holland, Michigan, it sounds like. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Was that in the Pazuzu case, maybe? Probably. Den of Iniquity. It sounds like maybe they called his house that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is pretty accurate. I think I used that in an intro as well. Yeah. I used those lyrics I, in like uh, the Daddy Tom Simmons sounds too familiar. or something. I, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that many times throughout my life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so they, they, they start realizing what, you know, what the stuff that was going on at this motel. And there was Janet, a girl they said they barely knew, drinking, sitting on someone's lap, wearing a guard's uniform. Janet, the night clerk, police say, got a lot of attention from the men. So in these photos, they see pictures of Janet dressed up, sitting on these security guards' laps. 
Um, Lieutenant Slank said, and I think there was through a, I think a lot uh, through her naivete, mm-hmm. Janet got sucked into things at the motel that she never that never should have happened. That's what Robert that- Lynch was in some of those pictures as well, and he was brought back in for questioning. I'm sorry, what were you going to say? I was going to say I, I don't think she was really naive to the things that were going on at the hotel. No, she was. As as, uh, this is an exciting time in her young life where she right. hadn't done any of this stuff before, and all of a sudden, there's all these men showing her attention. They're introducing her to alcohol and drugs, and it's just an experimental time in your life, it's, as it should be in your early twenties. Right, right. You know, especially when you lived a very sheltered life. She's just learning more about the world at this time. Exactly, exactly. The only naivete thing about it was that she trusted people that she shouldn't have. You know, which yeah, we see a lot sure. in these cases. Yeah. Um, Detective Jeff Floor, uh, the lead investigator, was brought in on the cold case team because of his skill of breaking down suspects. In fact, he had earned the nickname The Closer for his ability to break suspects, and now The Closer went to work on Robert Lynch after they brought him back in again. He showed a clip of Janet's father who appeared in the student documentary, um, and Detective Floor said to Robert Lynch, quote, you look at that dad, and you could just easily be, you could just as easily be sitting there. Do you understand? Lynch said, yeah. Floor said, you have children, right? Lynch said, yes. Three. Floor said, you remember the first time you went somewhere with them and you lost them? Lynch said, yeah. Floor said, you remember that feeling you got inside your body? Now imagine, just imagine, Bob, what would that feeling be like when you're talking about a 22-year-old girl? Lynch was affected by what he saw. Detective Floor said, I remember a slight tear in his eye. I remember a quiver in his lip, without a doubt. Mm. And finally, under intense questioning, Lynch cracked. He said, quote, well, there was a party that went haywire. He told detectives that Janet Chandler was at a party that night she was killed. Um, during the interrogation tape, Detective Floor said, quote, I want you to tell me the plan about the party. What, what was the party supposed to be about? Lynch said, I don't really know. <laughs> be about. And then over Parties 18, don't have to be about anything. <laughs> yeah. That's the whole point exactly. of partying, Detective. Yeah. yeah. Getting fucked up. That's what it's That's about. That's what it's about. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so they basically, Detective Floor and the other detectives just continually bring in Lynch and just continually, um, just roasted him. Work on him. Yeah, yeah they just Before roast him pressure. over 18 separate interrogation sessions, which is not something that we're particularly fond of on this show, as, as we've mentioned before. That's just how a lot of times you get uh, you get uh, false, false confessions, confessions. And, yep. and things like that. Absolutely. Uh, but in this case, it seemed to, to work for the better. Um, over 18 separate interrogation uh, sessions, Detective Jeff Floor broke down Lynch, and, uh, and Lynch finally revealed the truth about the party. Lynch said, quote, it was all about Janice. And the truth about the murder plot was so elaborate and so unimaginable, it even shocked these veteran detectives. Robert Lynch said the conspiracy to unfold uh, the night of January 31st, 1979 at the Blue Mill Inn. There was many people at this motel, guards, people that worked in the motel Mm -hmm. that conspired to do this to Janet, unfortunately. Um, Lynch said that he and another guard named Bubba Nelson told Janet there was a surprise party in her honor and got her ready to go on that night, January 31st, 1979. So that explains why there were no screams when she was taken <clears throat> exactly. from the hotel. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Detective Floor asks him, quote, tell me what you mean by ready. Lynch said, by taping her eyes so she wouldn't know where she was going. In fact, he didn't even mess with her hands. He said, he just said, this is a surprise. We're going to a party. Taping her eyes. According to Lynch. Jeez. So she went willingly with them. Um, and she was probably uh, really sad to think about. She was probably excited. You know, it's like a surprise party type of thing. Right, yeah. I'm sure she was. Um, and so according to Lynch, Janet left the motel calmly, expecting a surprise. It could be one reason why perhaps no witnesses had reported hearing a struggle. Um, and when they wondered about the robbery, they asked Lynch and 
Police said that they had found the motel safe open with $500 missing. Um, and Lynch said, in reality, him and Bubba Nelson were the robbers. They stole the money, and then Lynch made that phony 911 call, as they suspected. Right. I mean, they, they knew that that call was bogus. Um, Janet was then driven across town to a lakeside cottage where one of the guards had been staying. Lynch said, the scene of the so-called party, only after she was a prisoner in that cottage did she realize the frightening truth. And this cottage has since been torn down. Um, but what went on in that cottage last night is, is absolutely shocking, even if you're a true crime fan and you've heard a lot of horrible stuff before. Yeah. Prepare yourself. So Detective uh, Borowski said, quote, it wasn't a party, but a gang rape. Now Detective Floor pushed Lynch even harder. Floor, I think you killed her. I think you know who killed her. Finally, Lynch confessed to being one of the men who assaulted Janet and strangling her with a belt. Detective Floor said, so when I say you had sex with her that day, that's the truth, right? Lynch said, yes, Floor. And when I say that there, there was a belt held until she passed out and died, you checked her and she was dead. That's the truth. Lynch said, but it wasn't intentional. Mm. The lakeside cottage where the murder took place was torn down years ago, as I mentioned. He said that he and other guards were raping Janet in an upstairs bedroom. Uh, meanwhile, there was a party going on downstairs. Lynch said there were probably perhaps 25 partygoers, party both men and women, no one stepped in to stop the relentless assault on Janet, and for more than 25 years, no one went to the police. Mm. It's just mind-blowing to think that, how, you know, how many people were in on this, how many people oh witnessed this, and none of them had enough of a conscious following this an- to, to come forward and say anything. Even if they played, even if they didn't play a direct role, and if they were just there, and they wouldn't have even gotten in that much trouble, how do you not say something? Maybe they just didn't have the awareness. I mean, a lot of people at a party, it's like, you know, that's none of my business. There's a lot of that attitude. Especially at a party yeah. with a you know with a bunch of people who don't know each other, you know what I mean. It's not like a party yeah. with friends and stuff. You're talking about just a random party where people were coming to a hotel from all over the place. Um, yeah. And so you know, it's I think you had a whole lot of that's not that's none of my business. What's going on over there yeah. in that room or up there? And this was upstairs me in and, a bedroom. So and if you had multiple, me and you briefly there, discussed. We we briefly discussed before we started recording. You know whether we believe this was intentional or not. You were skeptical, but my my outlook on it was like, I if this is a planned gang rape where multiple people are in on it, uh, one of them will find out is someone she works with. Yeah. I just can't see a scenario where they didn't plan on killing her because you don't just like abduct someone, gang rape them, and then like expect them to come in on Monday to work and like act like nothing's, like they're going to report you. Exactly. You know, she's going to be so distraught after this. There's just no way she's not going to tell her parents or... Yeah, the police, something like that. And when that. you find out how deep this conspiracy goes with the with the people yeah. that were involved in this, you have to you have to realize yeah. this was on purpose. There was no way that she could live through this. You couldn't right. have any witnesses. That's why no one spoke yep. for twenty five years about it. Hmm. So uh, Robert Lynch, uh, following his confession, was arrested and charged with murder. But he still had one more surprise for the detectives. He said it wasn't just men who planned the attack; women were in on it as well. So during the inter- another interrogation floor said, so put yourself back in that room. You got how many women there are in this room during this planning? Lynch said two or three. Floor said two or three women. He said one of the women in particular, in particular was intent on getting Janet. Uh, Lynch, she played a role in being, Jan- being of being Janice's best friend, but actually I don't think she was. Detective Floor said, was, uh, what was her name? Lynch at the time said he couldn't recall. So detectives started back uh, to track down Janet's girlfriends from 1979. Diane Marsman worked at the Blue Mill Inn with Janet. She, too, had kept silent for years, but under repeated questioning, she finally opened up for the first time. 
Marsman said she watched from the balcony of the Blue Mill Inn that night, uh, the night that Bubba Nelson abducted Janet, and that she went to the party with another woman who worked at the motel, Sherry Ruiz. Mm. Ruiz's admissions about the plans for Janet were even more shocking. Sherry Ruiz said, quote, to strangle her, to torture her. God, it's just God. amazing. Almost all the women she worked with knew about this and were okay with it or directly planned it. Yeah. Though they didn't like that Janet was getting the majority of the attention yeah. from these guards. <laughs> so crazy. So let's uh, plan to torture and kill her, obviously. Yeah, obviously. She has to be out of the picture. I mean, that's the only way. Yeah. It's, it's such a dark environment. This motel, me, man. Like, you could make a film about this place. Seriously. It's a small world, man. I imagine these women spent a lot of time at this hotel, right? They worked yeah. long hours. Maybe part of it was just that they just, they slept all day and then they worked overnights and where they were just, it was a different lifestyle, you know? They were not, I'm not ex- by any means excusing this no. at all. I'm just trying to understand a little bit more of how you even get to this extent of being you're okay trying to with put it in perspective. witnessing this. When your life is at nighttime, you know what I'm saying? And you work at a hotel, like your world becomes even smaller in a town of 30. And every night's a party involving drugs exactly, and sex. Exactly. And the pool, the fish in the sea become a lot and yeah. a lot less. Especially smaller. Yeah. In a small town of 33,000. And now you're thinking just yeah. a small tourist attraction that this town has. It's just, I don't know, man. It's just a perfect storm. It really was. The jealousy just got to be too much, I guess. This is almost like the case of the teenagers we just did uh, from Denmark. Yeah. It's like your world gets too small, and you forget that there's a whole big world out there, and like they start obsessing over one thing. And we have to remember, honestly, these people weren't that much older. Early 20s. I mean, there's still plenty of people who who are not fully matured in their early 20s. You know what I'm saying? Lynch, Robert Lynch being the exception. He was the the older man at the time, being 39. Mm. And speaking of Robert Lynch, he finally was able to remember the one woman that was the primary planner of the attack. Oh, finally. He remembered her first name, Lori. Oh. So as we brought up Lori earlier in 1979, Lori was her roommate. That's uh, right. Her supposed best friend, Lori Swank, the one that had been hard to track down, the one that left town right after, right after. Uh, right after Janet's murder. She had been the night manager at the Blue Mill Inn at the time of the murder, and she hadn't been working that night. Detective Jeff Floor, the closer, confronted Swank with Lynch's allegation. He said, quote, so the killer pointed the finger at you. That's how we came back here. And after several more interrogations, the dam of denial started to break open, and she finally admitted she was in on the gang rape plan from the start, Mm. and she was even there when it ended. The 25-year silence had been shattered. Lori Swank told investigators the whole story, that she not only helped to plan the assault, but witnessed it. On September 20th, 2006, Michigan Attorney General Mike Cox uh, announced that in addition to Robert Lynch, five others were now charged with first-degree murder. Lori Swank and former guards Carl Pavia, James Bubba Nelson, Freddie Parker, and Tony Williams. Uh, Wow. And uh, Mike Cox would say, I have to say that the allegations here are as shocking and disturbing as I've ever seen. And... After 27 years of freedom, the defendants would be going to have to answer for what they did a long time ago. Facing life in prison, Robert Lynch and Lori Swank pleaded guilty, and both were sentenced to 20 years, and both agreed to testify against their co-conspirators. So they took a plea deal and got ahead of things. Right. Um, By the time the police arrested the guards, many of the students whose documentary had helped to reignite the investigation had graduated from Hope College and had moved on. But nonetheless, they celebrated the arrests of all these men and uh and women and as and, they should they had played a huge role yeah, in this happening absolutely wow um the trial would illuminate the motive for the murder lori swank's jealousy god that's just- she was janet's she was janet's roommate and had once professed to be janet's best friend 
Um, uh, but however, after taking the plea deal, she was, you know, forced to testify in court against her, you know, co-conspirators, yeah. but also, you know, to her involvement. And she said that, uh, she testified and you can watch this. It's on YouTube. You can watch her testifying. Um, yeah. and she said that, uh, Janet was so popular with the guards staying at the blue mill Inn, and that it turns out had a lot to do with why Swank began to hate her. Um, Donna Pendergrass, Michigan state attorney general, uh, said, uh, did Janet's relationship with the guards create any problems with you on a personal level? Lori answered, yes, because I became jealous. She was more popular. I guess I was less popular. <laughs> uh, Swank yeah. testified that in January 1979, she had a crush on defendant Carl Pavia, one of the guys who raped and murdered Janet. The supervi- uh, he was the supervisor of the guards at the time, and Janet was, on- was in the way. It was a classic love triangle. Lori wanted Carl, Carl wanted Janet, and Janet was playing the field which made Carl and some of the other guards angry. Right. Swank admitted that she would, so she would egg on Carl, um, uh, being Swank. Uh-huh. She would, uh, she would tell Pavia about Janet's alleged sexual escapades. Uh, the attorney, uh, assistant t- attorney general, Don, Donna Pendergrast said, quote, why did you give this information to Mr. Pavia? Lori said to anger him, to make him think less of Janet. Mm. Donna then said, how would he react? Lori said he would get angry, frustrated. He got upset. Donna then said, did he ever say anything that he intended to do in regards to this information? Lori said, uh, he, t- he said that he would take care of it. Um, Carl would, in fact, take care of it, Swank testified, by coming up with a plan to hu- ultimately humiliate and punish Janet. She said the other guards had, uh, Janet had dated and then dumped were also in on the plan. Uh, Lori said, quote, Janet thought a lot of herself, and it was mentioned that she would be brought down a few notches, teach her a lesson. My wow. God. Teach her a lesson. You, how do you teach by, anyone uh, a lesson by killing someone? Her. Right. You, you, yeah. That doesn't that doesn't quite add up. Teaching a lesson and teaching someone a lesson insinuates that they then go on go forward right. with this new lesson. <laughs> right. With this new in information. Life, right? Going forward is kind of the yeah. key part there. Well, when you murder them, that kind of uh, kills the right. idea. Yeah. Not very good. Um, so uh, Swank said that the plan was for Bubba Nelson to take Janet to the cottage where Carl was housed during the strike. Then Robert Lynch would stage the robbery at the Blue Mill Inn and make that phony 911 call to police. Janet was taken away around 2 a.m. and held at the cottage until the party started the next afternoon. The jury came back uh, with a verdict on the second day. Arthur Carl Pavia was found guilty of first-degree murder. The other three defendants were found guilty of second-degree murder and guilty of additional charges. Um, There had been a picture of Janet posted in the homicide division of the Holland Police for 28 years. Now it could finally come down. The prosecutor says he also kept a picture of Janet nearby through the, throughout the trial to, as a reminder of you know, how important this was. Yeah. The four men convicted of murdering Janet Chandler would be sentenced a few weeks after the trial, and this gave Jim and Glenna Chandler, her parents, uh, a chance to speak at the sentencing. Um, Jim would say, quote, Glenna and I have been waiting for 28 years for this day. They thought they got away with it, and for the most part they did, but because of the hard work and dedication of the cold case team and others, they've finally been brought to justice. Glenna says, quote, I thank you for upholding the laws of the land and the jurors for seeing the true evidence and returning a verdict of guilty of the torturing and murder of our beloved daughter. And with that, all four men were sentenced to life without parole. And we have uh, some updates as far as those that were convicted, Lori Swank would be released from prison in 2016. What the fuck? Uh, she was paroled in Pennsylvania, where she was living at the time of her arrest. And MDOC records show that as of 2018, she is no longer under supervision. Vision. So she's 
the only one that was directly involved that is now free. What do you think about Arthur, that? I mean... Uh, how long did she end up serving? She was... So they were convicted in what, like 2006? She served so she 10 served, years. What, 10 years? 10 years. And it was already a crime that was 25 years old, but she didn't do any... She didn't get any punishment for those 25 years. She lived free. So uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan of it considering she was the driving force behind it. This doesn't, you know, this was, doesn't the happen. The reason has happened. This she happen was the one egging her. on... Yeah, this doesn't happen without her. Absolutely. So yeah, I, I do have a problem with it. I think she should still be behind bars. I think so too. And she, because she was well into adulthood when this happened. I mean, she was older. Oh, yeah. She was what, 21, 22. I yeah, mean, it I know just seems so young. much more evil that she was, <sighs> she was supposedly her best friend, you know? That just seem, makes it seem so much more evil. Right. To me. If you're willing to do that with somebody you lived with, somebody who you were close with. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I don't know, man. And, and sure. I know she was, you know, just young, early 20s, uh, still had a lot of maturing to do. But, God, it's just, I just don't think you deserve to be out. I just don't think so. No. Especially not when all the guys that you involved in this are still in prison, or at least most of them, or, or dead. I agree. Right? Yeah, so Arthur Pava died in, in prison at 20, in 2013 at age 61. James Nelson, who went by Bubba, died in 2020 in prison, according to Michigan Department of Corrections records. And the other men convicted remain behind bars. Robert Lynch, now 81. Freddie Parker... Um, and Anthony Williams, both in their late 60s, remain in prison with life sentences. Wow. And, uh, yeah, what a case. What a case. Seriously. Uh, thankfully, thankfully, justice is finally served. And as we've mentioned in the past, you, you, can't, feel, you can't feel safe being a, an older person right now that committed a crime back in the day because there's just so many ways to get caught between DNA and yeah, there genealogy is. and documentaries being randomly made about the case. <laughs> oh, I know, right? All the sleuthers online. There's just so many ways to get caught now. I, I hope you didn't murder anybody in the 70s or 80s. <laughs> <laughs> For your case, I really hope you didn't. Yeah, you're going to be waiting for that knock at the door. Damn, there, you know there's so many people out there, Dan. There's probably thousands of people just in the U.S. who are waiting for that knock who, who could get it at any given time. Yeah. You know? That's good, though. Yeah. I'm glad they have to live with that. You know kid. what knock I enjoy waiting for? What is that? The delivery of my Oh My Guy. Dude, right? Me too. Me too. Nothing better than getting a fresh Oh My Guy delivery, knowing you're going to smell great for weeks to come. Oh My Guy is an innovative, all-natural deodorant, fragrance, and beard oil company specializing in paraben and aluminum-free products. Their innovative line of deodorants inhibit the growth of odor-causing bacteria while maintaining effectiveness. At Oh My Gaia, they use only all-natural paraben and aluminum-free organic ingredients. Guys, there's tons of scents to choose from. There's definitely something that you'll like from even unscented if you don't want a scent at all. But you can go with vanilla, cherry almond, sandalwood, lavender, lemongrass, Egyptian musk, coconut, dreamsicle, leather, lumberjack, honeysuckle, fireside, uh, bergamot amber, barbershop, pear, sailor. Um, and there's new scents being added all the time, as, as well as our own scent called True Crime Pine. It's been available since we started working with Oh My Gaia years ago. It has our old school podcast logo on it, guys. If you want a cool a cool jar, maybe something, maybe a little collector's item in the future, who knows? Who knows? But True Crime Pine be a great place to start with your Oh My Gaia order. And because you're True Crime Guys listeners, you can use the word creeper for 15% off your order. That's C-R-E-E-P-E-R. For 15% off your order at shop underscore oh my Gaia on Instagram or on oh my Gaia.com. That's O H M Y G A G A I A.com. Sorry, O H M Y G A I A.com. I've only done it like a million times. So 
figures I'd just fuck it up. <laughs> but it's all good. You guys won't regret it. And so is all my guy. It's all good. All good. All of it. Also got beard oil and scented oils and incense as well. All of your scented That's needs. Right. All right. I want to take a minute to thank everyone who's taken the time to go and rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever. Uh, I want to say thank you to Teresa Reeves, who says, so impressed with these two. I'm loving this podcast. Enjoy your conversation. The banter is fun. You're doing a great job researching, writing good scripts, and my husband even listens to it. We'd love to hear you cover the Lewis Clark disappearances and killings as a huge local case. Thanks. Keep creeping. Thank you, Teresa Reeves, and we will look into that. Then we got Kenna J., who said, you won't be disappointed. Just found these two in my 10-hour work days. Now I feel like I'm sitting around chilling with the boys. (laughs) <laughs> I will be upset when I once I catch up and can't binge. Well, that's what Patreon's for. We're going to talk about that in a minute. That's right. Uh, then we got Nard24. Uh, says, five stars, my favorite podcast. While listen, Funny while still being respectful. Thank you. Right on. Um, then we got uh, Hillfox84. Four-star review. I respect that. That's okay. Yeah. Um, uh, they said we say no doubt too much. That's okay. That's a, that was probably just that episode they listened to. They talk, Basically, the whole review was like shitting on us and then said, other than him, I like the podcast. Laugh out loud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it was just, I don't know which one of us say no doubt too much. It, it was could probably, be me, could be you. yeah, it was probably me. It was probably me during an episode, but I mean, sorry. Right. Uh, say thank you to Brit22789 with a five-star review. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though she doesn't enjoy the music intros, which is one of the things people love most about the show it's not for everybody not everything about every podcast is gonna be for everybody exactly Exactly. you can always just skip ahead of that it's fine but tons of people love it so and then we got brit rogue who says love you guys five stars uh still freeloader getting close to finishing all the free episodes that i'm going to be researching for a gold creep van sticker i think Uh oh. Love uh, love true crime and you guys make it really fun especially when you guys banter since I don't know yet, I would love for you guys to do a Jesse James episode. When I lived in Missouri, I could look out my window and see the house he was killed in right across the street from us. That's awesome. That is um, awesome. The, the house he was allegedly killed in, you mean? Yeah, right? Dun, dun, dun. Obviously, he's still alive, still out there kick, kicking ass. No, I think he died in uh, Missouri in like 1948 or something. No, he never died, bro. Oh, he never died? No. Wow. Lives forever. So he's like coming Immortal. up on like 200 years old or some shit, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a couple. I found a couple of reviews on Podchaser. Okay. Uh, so I want to shout out those people. Kara, uh, Kara Guitar says, Love your podcast. I also rated iTunes and brought. Stick- oh, so we probably already shouted you out before, but thanks for double reviewing. Yeah. And then we got Jeru. I'm going to definitely butcher your name. Easterling uh, said, Great podcast. You guys helped me through my 11 hour drive from San Antonio, San Antonio Texas to Florida. Five stars. Nice. Thank you guys. Um, We'll find you eventually if you've rated us on some other random platform. Right, we occasionally we'll find you eventually. Check so sometimes, yeah. yeah, we'll find you guys. But we appreciate any reviews and any any uh, word of mouth, any representation, any of the support, show. absolutely. Especially support on Patreon.com/slash True Crime Guys, where two bucks a month gets you access to our once a month uh, premium episode that's only for Patreon, as well as uh, five dollars a month gets you just the banter as well. It's another podcast that me and Michael do yep. every Friday. We jump on, we talk for about an hour. Um, and it's not true crime related generally. It's just life. We just yeah. talk about whatever's going on. And also people send in, in uh, all, all types of different questions, hypotheticals, you name it. Right. And you get to know us a little bit more. We just released uh, Just the Banter 47, volume 47. 47. So there's quite a few of them on Patreon right now. Uh, if you guys want to yep. want to know a little bit more about us and what we would do in weird scenarios. <laughs> yep. Heroes rant and rave about different things that annoy us, things like that. That's right. That's right. We have a good time on there. But that's every Friday, guys, we do that. And then every Thursday, we post 
on Patreon, uh, you know, just to make a post, just so you have a place to ask questions, uh, talk back with the show, whatever you want to do, because we we talk with, yep. we read every single question on for, on just yep. banter. So, all right, what very else? true. And then, if you're already uh, a patron of True Crime Guys, check out our other show called Strange and Unexplained. Uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, new episodes come out every Monday. That's strange and unexplained. It's where we tackle unsolved, missing persons, strange phenomena, uh, cases like that. Cases we tend to stay away from on True Crime Guys, unsolved cases. There's a lot of true crime listeners that just hate unsolved cases, um, but that's okay. We try to give it, give you uh, as big of a detailed uh, description of these cases as we possibly can. We also focus on less, less covered cases as well. Um, I study, my wife studies and writes for the show as well, and then Lauren studies for uh, Strange and Unexplained as well and does a synopsis at the end of every show. So you're actually getting three different people's perspectives on these missing person cases um, every week. So that again, that's Strange and Unexplained, wherever you listen to podcasts. Check it out. That's right. Check out, uh, it should say uh, True Crime Guys Presents, or the author's True Crime Guys. There are other podcasts called Strange and Unexplained, but uh, we were first. So there you have it. So look for the, look it. for the orange and teal. Strange and unexplained. That's right. And if you're into fantasy football, I have a fantasy football podcast yes. with my buddy Tori, Full House Fantasy Football. It's on every platform and app. Um, we missed this week so far, but we're going to be putting out an episode in a couple of days, recapping week four and, and heading into week five. So if you're into that sort of thing, check it out. Send us some questions, uh, some start sits, things like that, and we'll, right. we'll get to those questions for you. Yes, very helpful podcast. A couple of couple of fantasy veterans shooting the shit, yeah. telling you what to do. <laughs> That's right. All right, guys, uh, keep creeping. We'll see you next week for another freeloader ep- freeloader episode. That's Have right. A great week. Keep creeping, guys. True crime, guys. In the desert, we like a mirage. It's okay if you clicked on us because you thought we was true crime garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk at you. I'm talking to the creeper army. We out here making murder, get murder, get murder. True crime guys, in the desert we like a mirage. It's okay if you clicked on us cause you thought we was true crime garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk at you. I'm talking to the creeper army. We out here making murder charming.